<clears throat> Thank you for the introduction. The truth is that I have uh, tremendous opportunities over the course of the year and over the course of the summer to spend time with so many different programs from NCSY, but I, I have to say that I, I'm pretty sure that the next 40 minutes of my life are going to be the highlight of my summer. And I'll tell you why. The Pasuk says, Hine matov umanoim sheves achim gam yachad. How good is it? How pleasant is it? When siblings, brothers and sisters, sit together. I don't know about you, but when I was a little kid, I used to take family vacations. We used to go to Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Anyone here from Massachusetts? Anyone here from Boston? Okay, that's the first time that's ever happened. We used to go to Onset every summer, and I could tell right away in the beginning of the summer, if we were going away for a week, there was going to be one day where there was a huge family blow up. Me and my brothers, we were going to beat each other senseless. Something bad was going to happen. I don't know if you have this in your families, but it's certainly the way it happened in my family. And inevitably, every summer, wonderful summers, best memories of my life. But there was one day where my brothers and I would always go after each other. Now, I'm older, I have six children of my own. I have five daughters. I'll let that sink in for a second. You understand what that means to have five daughters? That means that the bathroom is the single most important room in my house. And the girls will kill each other over who spends more time in the bathroom. Kids fight, siblings fight. If I had boys, I imagine they would punch each other. I would love to have boys who punched each other because when girls fight, I don't know if you know this about yourself, it's merciless. The nasty things that girls can say to each other. A boy will punch each other in the face and they'll be friends two minutes later. A girl says, I'm never speaking to you again and she means it. It's devastating. Over a bathroom. They come running and crying to me, ah, but you know what she said? I'm like, I don't care what she said, you look fine. You don't have any black and blue marks on you. So what's so good and what's so pleasant about siblings sitting together? It doesn't seem very pleasant at all. And not only that, but if you pay attention to the words, how good is it and how pleasant is it? Things can be good for you. Medicine is good for you, but it's rarely pleasant. A bag of chips can be pleasant but it's not so good for you. So this is an ambitious statement. How good is it? And how pleasant is it? When siblings sit together, we turn to the Torah. Maybe it's my own family that has such dysfunctional issues, but we turn to the Torah and we look throughout the entire Sefer Bereshus, the entire story of creation from the beginning all the way through the Jews going down to Egypt as slaves. Cain killed Hevel. Cain killed Abel. Yishmael tried to kill Yitzchak. Esav tried to kill Yaakov. Yosef's brothers tried to kill him, but they had mercy. They only sold him down as a slave to Egypt. It doesn't seem so good. It doesn't seem so pleasant. So what's going on over here? That's question number one. Question number two, and this will be the last question for the day. Only two questions today. Moses gathers everyone together. Vayakel. He gathers everyone together. To teach us what? To teach us 
to keep Shabbos and to build the Mishkan, to build the tabernacle. And the question is, why does Moshe, why does Moses have to gather everyone together to build the tabernacle and to teach us the laws of keeping Shabbos? Why is it so important that we do that as a nation? Everyone knows that the Jews received the Torah at Har Sinai. We received the Torah in the Sinai Desert on Mount Sinai. And when we received the Torah, something critical happened. It says, Vayichan Sham Yisrael Neged Hahar, that the Jews encamped around the mountain. But the word Vayichan, which means to encamp, is in the singular. It's not Vayachanu, which would be plural, it's Vayichan, singular. So something extraordinary happened, perhaps the first and maybe the last time in Jewish history. Jews got together to do something. Like one man with one heart, totally unified. I don't know if you know this about Jews, but you could go to a Jewish community almost anywhere in the world and there's the shul I davenet and the shul I would never davenet. You go to a desert island, you're a Jew, you find another Jew. He says, yeah, there's 10 Jews here, but we have two minyanim. People don't want to daven with each other. People are so divided. But on that day when we received the Torah, every single Jew was together as one. But it didn't last. It didn't last. Because just 40 days later, we worshipped the golden calf. Now how many people know how many golden calves they made? When I was growing up, I thought they made one giant golden calf. But then I started learning, and I found out that it's not true. There wasn't one golden calf made. There was 12 different golden calves that were made. Each tribe made their own golden calf. And then Moses came down from the mountain, and he took the luchos, he took the tablets, and he smashed them on the ground, and that was the end. What's the deeper meaning? What's the inner message that's going on in this story? The inner message is very simple and yet very profound and I think it's totally appropriate for what you are going to do over the next two days. We can receive the Torah together. The only way we can receive the Torah is together. And when we divide, because we're from different communities, because we're from different walks of life, perhaps we have different ways of serving God, Perhaps some of us are more observant or less observant. But the moment that we divide ourselves and we start identifying ourselves as different camps, that's when we lose everything. That's when we're no longer worshiping one God. Each tribe has their own God. So I want to tell you a story. It's an amazing story. It's 100% a true story. I know it's a true story because it happened to me. I fly to America, unfortunately, way too often. And I flew, I don't know how many of you flew here on El Al, I flew on El Al, which is always a wonderful experience. The stewardesses are so kind, the food is so delicious, people are so polite. So I'm sitting there and there's nothing that frustrates me more, especially when I'm leaving to go to America. There is nothing in the world that frustrates me more than a delayed takeoff. Because I'm going to get in at 5 o'clock in the morning and then I have to run across the airport to Hertz Rent-A-Car. 
and I have to get my car and then I have to go to Davin and wherever I'm going after that, I've got a busy day. I don't have time to be an hour late. And inevitably, whenever I fly Alal, we leave late. Why do we leave late? Because a couple of my brothers who have perhaps longer side locks and wear different clothing than me have decided, even though it's not my opinion, I respect them for theirs, I wouldn't do this, but they do, they've decided they can't sit on a plane next to a woman. I don't know if you've seen this before, but they refuse to sit. They stand in the aisles, it's uh, in protest, everyone has to move, it's musical chairs, only on a Jewish airline could we have that. If it was a Gentile airline, we'd be like, okay, of course, I have to see it. It's going to be a Phil Hashem. On El Al, it's like, I won't sit there. Everybody has to move because of me. And it frustrates me so much. Just sit down. It's not a big deal. Just take off. And I'm sitting on this El Al flight in an aisle seat in the middle. So you know how it goes. There's three seats on one side, three seats on the other, four seats in the middle. I'm sitting on the right side of the middle seats in the aisle. Next to me is a... What appears to be a Haredi-looking Jew, big black hat, long black coat, big beard. And next to him is another guy, same-looking guy. And next to them is a conservative rabbi. Now, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know he was a conservative rabbi at the time. He's just the guy who's sitting there. And we're all kind of sitting there, we're all kind of frustrated, and the guys next to me are like, why can't they just sit down? It's not a big deal. And I'm like, oh, you feel that way too? Okay, good. Everyone's like on the same page. We're all banding together against other Jews. This is the spirit of an El Al airline. And these guys are refusing to sit down. I'm like, come on, just sit down already. And finally, some guy gets up. Because you know the stewardesses aren't going to take care of it. Some guy gets up, sit, you know, he gets up. Okay, you move here, and you move here, and you move here. And everybody sits down. And now in front of me, I've got four men dressed in their big black hats, their long black coats, and they finally get comfortable. And the guy who's to the far left, the conservative rabbi, very politely, exceptionally politely, he leans forward. And he says to a young man about 21 years old, who's sitting in the seat, not right in front of him, but diagonally in front of him. And he says, would you mind if I asked you a couple of questions? And this is all happening in Hebrew. So the kid says, of course, ask away. So he goes, what did you just do? Why did you just do that? You made everyone on the plane wait. Why did you just do that? Now he said it very respectfully. And the guy responds and he says, you have to understand, I don't touch women. I'm very careful about this. This is my understanding of the halacha. So it's worth, to me, a million dollars. I can't give that up. I can't give that up. Conservative rabbi nods his head and says, I can appreciate and understand where you're coming from. Can I tell you what I think? The kid says, of course, it's such a respectful dialogue. He says, of course, please tell me what you think. He says, I think that we only have the Dalad Amos of Halacha, the four cubits of the law. And we all have to live within those Dalad Amos, within those four cubits. So we have to make room for everyone. And the kid nods his head, this 21-year-old guy, he nods his head and he goes, yeah, I can appreciate that. That's such an interesting way of thinking about it. And yet at the same time, I'm not trying to be offensive to her. If she would only know that this is the law for me as I understand it, that she wouldn't be offended. And the conservative rabbi answers back and he goes, yes, but the point is that she doesn't necessarily know that. And she is offended. And the way you behaved made her feel like she was outside of the four cubits of Allah. And they're going back and forth, back and forth. And this takes place for about 15 minutes. And I'm sitting and listening to the entire thing. And at the very end, they part ways as friends. And I ask the conservative rabbi, 
would you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? And he said, sure. And he actually switched seats with the guy who was sitting next to me so that we could talk. And we're sitting there, and I introduce myself, and he introduces himself. That's where I found out that he was a conservative rabbi from Washington. And I asked him, what made you feel comfortable to ask that guy those questions? So he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, let me put it this way. If there were Amish people on the plane who refused to sit next to women, would you have felt comfortable questioning their belief system? And he looks at me and he goes, no, of course not. I never would have done that. And I said, exactly. So why do you feel comfortable doing it with them? So he goes, you know, I never thought about it before. So I said, maybe you feel comfortable because you're looking at that Jew and you're saying, that's my brother. And how could my brother behave that way? He's making our sisters feel bad that he won't sit next to them. So the reason you ask the question, perhaps, is not because you feel so distant from the person who's sitting in front of you, but because you feel so very close. And the reason it bothers you so much that he has this belief system is because you're his brother and you say, how could my brother behave that way? And that was the entire flight. We spoke for the entire flight. It was amazing. Because when we appear to be so different from each other, the truth is we're so the same. And I wish I could tell you that that conversation that I had with him was my own brilliant Einfall, but it wasn't. I ripped it off. I stole it from Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky. How many people here have heard of Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Tversky? <coughs> Rabbi Dr. Tversky is a Hasidish Jew, went to Harvard. He's a psychiatrist. Today he lives in Beit Shemesh. Back when he was younger, he was considered one of the foremost psychiatrists in the world. He specialized in addiction. He created the first center for addiction for Jews. An exceptional man. Rabbi Tversky dresses in Hasidic garb. When he opens his mouth, he sounds like a Harvard professor. But when you look at him, he looks like any other Hasidic man. And somebody on a train once went over to him and said, you Jews, it's time for you to leave the 17th century and come, and this is a Jewish man himself who's saying it, and you have to come be modern Jews living in today's society and you have to dress like you're a modern person. And Rabbi Tversky is just sitting, his, sitting there and he's nodding his head the entire time. And after about three minutes, he says, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I just want to tell you, I'm Amish. And all of a sudden the guy's eyes go wide and he's like, I am so sorry. I've actually been to Amish town. I think it's amazing what you do. No electricity. It's so good today with technology. And then everybody turns and goes, no, no, no. I am actually Jewish. But I just want to know, if I was Amish and you would treat me with such respect, why won't you treat me with respect when I'm a Hasidish Jew? But I, I, it's an unbelievable story because Rabbi Tversky showed the man his own bias. But at the same time, I would say back to Rabbi Tversky, but it's amazing that he came over to you, so offended by the way you dress because he feels so close to you and he doesn't understand why you can't just catch up today because that's what he believes to be true. What's amazing about what you guys are going to do over the next two days and the reason why I think that this is going to be my highlight of the entire summer, having the, enti having the unbelievable opportunity to speak with you, is because you're doing something. Today, over the next two days, you're doing something so extraordinary. Jews from all walks of life saying it doesn't matter where we come from because we're sisters. It doesn't matter what program we're on because for the next two days, 
we're on the same program. Everyone here was at Yom NCSY. I take my children every single year to Yom NCSY. Why do I take my kids to Yom NCSY? I'll tell you why. Because I live here in Beit Shemesh, down the block from Rebetz and Yudin. And we have the most unbelievable, beautiful community. And everybody in our community keeps Shabbos, and everybody in our community keeps kosher, and there's unbelievable chesed. It's incredible what goes on in our community. But you know the problem with my community? You don't see any other types of Jews. You only see one type. And I, I want so badly for my children to come and see what the Jewish nation really looks like. And that's why I bring them to Yom NCSY every year. To see that Jews are not one shape and one size and one stripe and one color, but we're so multifaceted. And that's what makes us incredible. Now today you may look at me and you may say, there's Rav Berg standing in front, holding the microphone, giving the shear. Overweight with a beard, it's not nice, don't think that, don't even say it. The truth of the matter is, I come from a very unique family. I come from a family where my grandmother was not an observant Jew. My grandfather was not an observant Jew on my mother's side. The same thing on my father's side. None of my dad's siblings are Orthodox. One of my mom's siblings became Orthodox. My grandmother became Orthodox, whatever that means, Orthodox. She became Orthodox when she was 70 years old. So now she's like exceptionally judgmental. It's an amazing thing. So he yells at my cousins for not keeping Shabbos. I'm like, Grandma, you didn't keep Shabbos for 70 years, but okay. You know, like, uh, she's the most amazing person. I love her dearly. My house growing up was a mini Yom NCSY. Pesach Seder, everyone came to my house. Because where else would we have had Pesach Seder? And every year, from so many different walks of life, whether it was my cousins when they were little or when they were in college, as the family grew older, the family divided. We moved to Israel. And I feel something is missing from my life since I came to Israel. You know what's missing? My home. Back on 707 on Annapolis Street and then 172 Harborview North where everyone used to gather together and I learned from the time that I was very little that no two Jews are alike and that's what makes us beautiful. I learned from an exceptionally young age to accept everyone no matter what their beliefs were. It didn't matter to us as long as you were a Jew. But you know, as with many families, there's a lot of assimilation. And unfortunately, my cousins have begun marrying Gentiles. And that's very sad for me. My father always communicated to every one of my cousins, I'll love you no matter what. I'll accept you no matter what. But don't marry out. Keep the tradition going. Keep the chain going. That was the message that my father sent to us and to my cousins. And as my cousins were getting older, we started to realize, you know, maybe it's not going to happen. And so many of them started marrying out. But I have one cousin, his name is Michael. Michael is my age, exactly my age. And Michael went to Oswego State University of New York. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Oswego SUNY, but Oswego SUNY is what they call a drinking school with a college problem. You don't go to Oswego for the higher level of education. You go for the higher level of something that's not so much the education. 
And when Michael came back for the Pesach Seder after his spring semester from Oswego Sunni, everyone was nervous to ask the one question. Michael, are you dating anyone in college? Now, I had come back from my Shana Aleph, from my first year that I had spent here in Israel. After high school, I decided to take a year off to come to Israel for the year to learn, to get connected to the land of Israel. And my cousin Michael, who's my counterpart, my exact age, Michael says, I'm going to Oswego Sunni. Of course, why would he think to come to Israel? He never went on TJJ Ambassadors. He never had anything to do with NCSY. Michael's sole Jewish experience was the Pesach Seder at my house. And finally, my dad gets the courage to go over to Michael and he says to him, Michael, are you dating anyone? And Michael looks at my dad and he goes, Uncle Mitch, of course I'm not dating anyone. And my father was like, really, why? And he goes, because there are no Jewish girls that I would be interested in in Oswego. And my father breathed a sigh of relief. He was like, okay, like, Michael, that's, that's amazing. I'm so happy that you're committed to marrying a Jewish girl. Why, why is that so important to you? And Michael looks at my father and he says, Uncle Mitch, how strange would it be if I brought a Gentile girl to your Seder? And I want to tell you that as a kid growing up, I always wondered, what was the impact of having a Pesach Seder at our house where it was so inclusive, where it was so loving, where everyone was so excited to be there with each other? Not because of where we came from, just because of who we were. I, was, I always wondered, is there real value to that? And when Michael said that, it justified for me at that time 18 years of Seder, 18 years of getting together. You know, the truth is when I was a kid, I don't know if any of you had this, but you know how like sometimes teachers in school will give you like giant notebooks full of stuff that you have to say over at the Seder. Anyone here have that experience? Like your father is not allowed to say a word because you have like a Dvar Torah from your third grade Mora who gave you like, uh, she gave you like a thing that you have to say. It's a parable. It's an amazing thing. You have to say it. The father doesn't get to say a word. I always was a little resentful. I wanted to say things at the Seder too, but I couldn't because the Seder was geared to so many different types of people. But Michael looked at my dad and he said, of course I would never marry out. Of course I would never assimilate. I want my children to be Jewish, because how strange would it be? Yom Siyaswai is an amazing day. Because for a couple of hours, we all sit under the same roof, we listen to the same music, Simcha Liner can sing his same four songs. It's okay, I like Ohad. <laughs> and we all dance together. And if, it was, if, if, if we only had Yom Siyaswai, Dayenu, that would be amazing. But it's not enough. It's not enough if it doesn't mean that afterwards we come together and we have programs exactly like this. Yom NCSY is just the beginning. For the next two days, you are going to learn so much about each other and you're going to learn so much from each other. And the from each other part is the part I really want to highlight just for a minute. There's a rabbi today who lives in Israel. He's a very big rabbi. His name is Rabbi Breidowitz. Anyone here ever heard of Rabbi Breidowitz? If you're from Silver Spring, Maryland, I would have hoped you'd heard of Rabbi Breidowitz. I don't know what I said, but I love that reaction. Oh, I forgot that girls do that. When you say where you're from, they go, ah! When you speak to guys and you're like, anyone here from Silver Spring? Guys are like, yeah, whatever. We mostly grunt and groan, you know. Rabbi Breidowitz is an amazing, amazing man. Really a spectacular man, a special man. If you have the opportunity to listen to any of his lectures online, he's so special. 
He was the head of uh, the law department in the University of Maryland for many, many years. He's a tremendous, tremendous Tamachachim. He knows a tremendous amount of Torah. There's a guy who lives on my block. I don't know if I should say his name because he lives right down the block from Mrs. Yudin as well. But he didn't grow up in an Orthodox family. He didn't grow up, you know, really with any Judaism. He grew up in Virginia. And when he came to Israel, he, you know how Jews find themselves in Israel? Nobody actually comes to Israel. We find ourselves in Israel. Like, yeah, I don't know exactly how I got here. Some NCSY advisor told me a thing. I ended up on TJJ. As many friends of mine have said, I kept trying to do things and then Jewish things got in the way. Right? So he was one of these guys. He ended up in Israel somehow, some way. And he didn't like any of the programs that he was on. Because every time he went on a program, they kept saying how much he was going to learn. And when he came to Israel, it was already after he had graduated University of Virginia. I think at the time he was just starting law school in University of Miami. He chose to go to University of Miami because it was the best place to surf. He was a surfer. He used to spend his summers surfing off the coast of Costa Rica. And he came to Israel and everyone kept telling him, how much are you going to learn? How much are you going to learn? And he kept wondering, when am I going to teach? You know, I have life experience too. I have so many things to share. And he finally went on one program through our Sameach. And Rabbi Breidowitz was there with them for Shabbos. And Rabbi Breidowitz said, I'm so excited to spend Shabbos with you. I'm excited to teach, but I'm also excited to learn. And it was the first time, he told me, in all of his journeys, it was the first time that somebody had ever made him feel like he had something to contribute. And the truth of the matter is that all of us have something to contribute. Each one of us in this room, we have something to contribute because we come from so many different places. And whether you're in Mechlelet or whether you're in TJJ Ambassadors, it doesn't matter. We can learn from each other if we'll have respect for each other. If we'll consider that perhaps maybe I know more Torah, but this person also has wisdom. And if we open up to the experience of learning from each other, I'll tell you that these will be the two days that you'll remember. You'll do amazing Tiyulim this summer. You'll have amazing Chesed opportunities. You'll hear amazing classes. But nothing will change your life like opening up to the possibility that somebody knows something that you don't from the most unexpected person. Nothing will change your life like that. The rabbis say, I learned much from my rabbis, but I learned more from my students. And it's true. I've been teaching for a long time now, and my best teachers are my students. Girls, your best teachers over the next two days are each other. You'll learn a tremendous amount if you open up to that possibility. So let's return to our original question, or our second question, actually. Why does Moses gather everyone together to teach them about Mishkan, to teach them about Shabbos? The answer is because that's the way Jews do things. When we do things successfully, it's only because we can do them together. When we receive the Torah, it's because we could receive it together. When we worship golden calves, it's separate. Shabbos is a time of community where everyone comes together. Building a sanctuary, it can only happen when everyone comes together. But I want to share with you something deeper now. So please open your hearts just for a couple of minutes and open your minds because I want to share something a little bit deeper now. The truth of the matter is that the sanctuary, the Mishkan, the Beis HaMikdash, the temple in Jerusalem, while they exist in space, the truth of the matter is that it's just a reflection of what exists inside of ourselves. The Pasuk says, 
Create for me a temple, a sanctuary, and I will dwell within you. Not within it. Not that God says, I will dwell within the temple. I will dwell within you. Which means that when we are together as one, when all of the Jewish nation comes together, then the sanctuary can exist. But when we divide ourselves by our different camps, and we start saying, I'm this type of Jew and I'm that type of Jew, the Beis HaMikdash can't exist. It's not possible for it to exist because the Beis HaMikdash is a living organism. It's what occurs when every one of us is together. And when we separate from each other, then the Beis HaMikdash is destroyed. We had two temples. The first temple was destroyed because we were involved in terrible, terrible sins, terrible averas. Gili Arayas, Shvichas Dam and Avodazara. We were idolatrous. We had inappropriate relationships. We murdered. And the temple was destroyed, but only for 70 years. The second temple was rebuilt. And it was destroyed because of baseless hatred between Jews, because of nonsensical separation. And it's been thousands of years since it's been rebuilt. And you know why? Because we're making the same mistakes over and over again. You know what the definition of insanity is? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Until we learn that it doesn't matter what type of Jew you are, until we learn to come together, we will not rebuild the Beis HaMikdash. And now we're in the period of the three weeks. We're once again mourning the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. And we mourn the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash in the hopes that maybe this year we'll get the lesson. Maybe it'll be this year. And we keep blowing it. But maybe now, in Michlelet, in TJJ ambassadors coming together, maybe we'll finally show God we're starting to get it. Maybe you girls will lead the way. Maybe on Tisha B'Av this year, it'll be Mechlelet and TJJ ambassadors holding hands, dancing around Mashiach, saying, we brought Mashiach because we came together. That would be an amazing scene to watch. Because we can't be insane anymore. I'll tell you an amazing story. It's a story of two friends. Both became among the greatest rabbis of their generation. They met each other in Berlin. One was Rav Yosef Dov Halevi Salavechik, commonly known as the Rav. He was Rosh Shiva in Yeshiva University. He was one of the greatest Tamilei Chachamim of his time. He had exceptional powers of analysis. He was well-versed in the entire Torah. Incredible. He came from the house of Brisk, which is very analytical, very logical. It's called a Litvish way of thinking, from the Lithuanian school of thinking. The other man, his name was Rav Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who became the Lubavitcher Rebbe, commonly known as the Rebbe. The Rebbe and the Rav. They went to University of Berlin at the same time. They were actually chavrusas. They used to learn together. They used to go to shir together. In fact, the story goes that one time on Purim, the Lubavitcher Rebbe got drunk in University of Berlin and he stood up on a box in University of Berlin and he started delivering a Hasidic discourse and he was arrested for drunken disorderly. And who posted bail? None other than his good friend, Rosalovechik. Of course, at the time, they were only kids in college together. They didn't know that each one of them was going to become amongst the leaders of the generation. 
Many, many, many years later, after decades and decades and decades of being friends, the Lubavitcher Rebbe turned 80 years old, and they made what's called a fabrengen. A fabrengen means that all the Hasidim get together in 770, and they, the Rebbe sat at a very, very long table, and all the older Hasidim sat behind the Rebbe, and thousands and thousands and thousands of Hasidim crowded into 770 to sing, to dance, to make a lachayim with the Lubavitcher Rebbe on the occasion of his 80th birthday. And they sent a limo to pick up Rav Soloveitchik, to bring Rav Soloveitchik to see his good friend on the occasion of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's 80th birthday. And they invited him up to the front to sit next to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and the Rav refused. To sit next to the Rebbe, he wouldn't do. So he sat all the way down at the end of the table. And you can see, if you go online and you Google it, you can see the pictures of the Lubavitcher Rebbe sitting in the middle, and about 20 feet down that way is Rav Soloveitchik, the Rav. And as he was leaving, a reporter said to Rav Soloveitchik, you know, I know that your family, the great family of Brisk, has been opposed to the great family that Rav Schneerson comes from, the Lubavitcher family, the family of Hasidim. Because there was a big split. Seven generations earlier, there was a big split between the Hasidim and what was called the Misnagdim, those that opposed Hasidim. And the Soloveitchik side was on one side and the Schneerson side was on the other. There's been a big split. Perhaps now you finally come and made peace with each other. And Rav Soloveitchik said, no. We did not make peace with each other today. We made peace when we were burned in the same ovens in Auschwitz because Hitler didn't care what type of Jew you were. He just cared that you were Jewish. He didn't care if you were a Hasid and he didn't care if you were opposed to Hasidus. All he cared about is that you were Jewish. Our greatest teacher is the anti-Semite that looks at us and he says, Jew. And you have to look at the world today, girls. You have to pay attention to the anti-Semitism that's going on. When Ilhan Omar says, it's all about the Benjamins, baby, that's anti-Semitism. And when she says that anti-Semitic trope, she's not thinking about this type of Jew or that type of Jew. She's only thinking Jews pay off people in the government to get what they want. She's referring to us in the singular just as we did when we received the Torah, just as we did when Moshe taught us about Shabbos and he taught us about building the sanctuary. And when we lose the Beis Hamikdash, it's when we start to consider ourselves different. We're one organism. Some of us are the head, some of us are the heart, some of us are the arms, some of us are the legs. But we can't do without each other. Even the word Yisrael, which is the Jewish nation, Yisrael stands for Yesh Shishim Ribui Osios La Torah. There are 600,000 letters in the Torah, which is referring to the 600,000 Jews that encamped around Harsinai. Every one of us is critical. And there's a halacha that if even one letter is missing in a Sefer Torah, the Sefer Torah is possible. Every one of you represents a letter in the scroll. And if we lose even one of you, the scroll is possible. The problem today is that we don't teach each other how each one is so valuable. We have to take the time to recognize that each one of us is unique, but we're all part of this exceptional organism called the Jewish nation. It says, Torah tzivalanu Moshe, Morasha kihilas Yaakov. Moses commanded us to keep the Torah, the inheritance of the house of Jacob. What is an inheritance? An inheritance means if you're a child, 
your inheritance belongs to you. And it doesn't matter if you're a good child or a bad child. It doesn't matter if you're an observant child or a non-observant child. It's your inheritance. The Torah is your inheritance. Every one of us has a part in it. I want to finish by telling you a very famous mushal, a very famous parable. And even if you've heard it before, it's worthwhile to hear again. It's the story of a man who had a son that he loved very much. And this man would spend time. He wasn't one of those dads that didn't spend time with his children. He really made sure to give his son the proper focus. So every day when his son came home, he spent time, half an hour, 45 minutes, playing with his son. But this day he had a project that he hadn't finished. And it was really important that he get the project done. But he knew his son was going to be walking in the door. So he said, what do I do? My son's going to be walking in the door. I want to give my son the attention that he deserves, but I'm going to need him to wait 45 minutes. So let me give him something to do. Let me find something for him to do, just so that he could be occupied until I'm ready to spend time with him. And he sees a magazine. And he sees in the magazine that's open, there's a picture of the entire world. So he takes the picture and he cuts it up into little pieces. And when his son comes home, he hands his son these little pieces of the picture and he says, son, I'm going to be with you in about 45 minutes. Daddy just needs to finish this project. Just give me 45 minutes. But in the meantime, why don't you take this puzzle that I've made for you and put it together? And he's cut it up into little pieces. It's going to be hard for him to put it together. And about five minutes later, the son comes back with the picture all perfectly taped up. And the father is astounded. I have a genius for a son. That's amazing. How did you do this so fast? And he says, how'd you do that? And the son says, it was easy. On the other side of the picture, there was a picture of a person. So I just flipped over all the, picture, all the pieces. I put together the face of this person. And then the whole world came together. I like it too. <laughs> Girls, every one of us is an entire world. Adam was created singular. He was created first. The first person was Adam. He was created first. You know why? To teach us the lesson that every single one of us is valuable. Every single one of us is an entire world. And the question is, can we put ourselves together? Can we link arms with each other? Can we take the opportunity over the next two days to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash? Because I'm tired of fasting on Tisha B'Av. I'm tired of crying on Tisha B'Av. I'm tired of sitting on the ground on Tisha B'Av. I'm tired of giving the same speech every year on Tisha B'Av. And I always wondered myself, who's going to be the ones to fix it? The adults, we're too messed up. We're already stuck in our ways. We're already so blind to the truth. If you want to know the truth, look to the kids, because the kids will always tell you the truth. My daughters always tell me the truth, even when I don't want to hear it. I'm walking out and my 14-year-old daughter looks at me and she goes, are you really going to wear that? I go, I guess not. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> the truth, the truth, you guys have the truth. We don't have the truth. We're already too messed up. But if you spend the next two days of your life really recognizing it doesn't matter where we come from, we have so much to learn from each other. Only when we link arms, only when we put ourselves together will the entire world come together. Hopefully in just a couple of days, this Tisha B'Av, we're going to greet Mashiach together. 
and it's going to be t j ambassadors and it's going to be leading the way